Hello, and welcome to the Buddhist Other podcast about intersections of Buddhism, magic, mysticism, mythology, deep ecology, and what we are calling the Dharma of now. My name is Reverend Joseph Rogers, and along with my dear friend, Reverend Corey Swartzel, I am the co-host and creator of the podcast. In my many conversations with Corey, we have discussed, lamented even, what we see as the state of Buddhist practice in the United States specifically, and the so-called West generally, around the mindfulness movement, which seems to have devolved both into a pyramid scheme of teacher trainings, expensive retreats, and online content, similar to what happened with yoga, and is suffering from an attempted merge with scientific materialism. Perhaps you too have heard the mantra of the modern mindfulness teacher, Buddhism is not a religion, meditation is a technique. I mean, both Corey and I are trained meditation teachers, for whatever that means. We are also both ordained Zen peacemakers. Corey studied under Shinzen Young and led a sitting group at his house in Echo Park for many years. I was trained for five years as a meditation teacher with the now defunct Against the Stream, which in many ways was a satellite of Spirit Rock and Jack Cornfield's mindfulness training. I also have a Master of Divinity in Buddhist Chaplaincy from University of the West, a Buddhist university in Los Angeles. I was a founding teacher of what came to be known as the Living the Suttas Sitting Group, which ran from about 2010 to this year. Using primarily the Pali Canon, we studied suttas that specifically focused on the practice of merit, that is, the practice of the layperson in Theravadan Buddhism, generosity, ethics, and the cultivation of a kind heart. But Corey and I also share an interest of the occult and the paranormal. We both have a background in esoteric studies and practice, which I came to through Gaelic fairy folklore, Wicca, and divination practice since my teen years, and Corey has one of the finest occult libraries that I have personally encountered. I think this is a common thing among many people who come to meditation, either because of some opening experience they have had, or out of a deep sense, there is something other that they want to connect with directly. When I first started practicing, I remember people asking me if I had developed any powers yet. Ramdas's classic Be Here Now is one of the most mystical books I've encountered. And most teachers of magic will tell you to start with a solid foundation of mindfulness practice, but there seems to be an effort to strip this sense of the weird from modern mindfulness in its rush to respectability and profit. Quite frankly, it's gone from mountaintops and ecstasy to your Aunt Karen's dry-ass turkey. Even the Dharma punks just want to talk about attachment styles and trauma modalities, which is fine. I myself have a degree in psychology, have worked in mental health treatment, and am trained in both EMDR and somatic experiencing, which are trauma healing modalities. I think the impact of mindfulness on psychology is profound and has moved practical psychology forward from the spiral of mere talk therapy. But in my readings of the suttas, I found a magical realm, unlike what I had been taught 
in my teacher training. Gods, heaven and hell, angels, spirits, demons, and fairies fill the pages. The Buddha of the suttas visits heavenly realms, defeats demon armies, demonstrates miracles, tells the story of the God's creation, materializes and dematerializes, reads people's minds, and flies through the air, shooting fire from his fingertips before coming down in a superhero landing. This is the stuff of mythology and magic, and it's interesting as all hell realms. So apologies for this, our first episode. We don't know what we are doing, mostly. We just did it, like the Gen Xers we are. We start off with a lot of ums and probably need better microphones, but we hope that you too are interested in the world of Buddhist wizards, visitations from devas, and the hope in re-enchanting the world of making Dharma magic again. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. I'd hate for us to say something brilliant. Unlikely, but. (laughs) (laughs) And miss it, right? As like, wow, that one time. Yeah. Um, so, so here we are, here we are, um, welcome to the inaugural episode of, uh, the Buddhist other, a podcast about the intersections of, uh, Buddhism, magic, mysticism, mythology, deep ecology, and what we're calling the Dharma of now. I'm, uh, Joseph Rogers, and this is my associate, Corey Swartzel. And uh, we are, what are we, Corey? Well, uh, technically, we are both Buddhist lay ministers. Um, A Buddhist Creole thing, if there ever was one. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We'll talk about later on. Yeah, that's that's a whole uh, episode to, of exploration in and of itself. Um, we're both lifelong sort of uh, spiritual explorers. Um, and I think both of us share a certain reticence about um, expertise. Part part of uh, what brought us together for this project was the idea of exploring different forms of Buddhism, not as Buddhologists and not as um, monastics uh, or or any sort of Buddhist scholars per se, but as lay practitioners with a strong curiosity and sort of open mind. Um, so we're also both, um, uh, ordained Zen, uh, peacemakers and, and, uh, one, one of the things that the founder of that organization, Bernie Glassman, Glassman, Roshi Bernie, um, was very keen about was that, um, 
that sort of um, beginner's mind, you know? Um, not knowing, right? That's yeah. one of the, the three tenets. One of his three tenets is, is that not knowing. And, um, from, you know, that sort of old Zen doctrine of beginner's mind. And I think that both of us share a, a love of approaching things from that angle. So, well, and, 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 you know, in our conversations about why we wanted to do this, I think that both of us also touched on this idea that a lot of American Buddhism is very dry, right? It's very mm -hmm. academic. It's very mindfulness based. Um, and that it, it really lacks a certain juiciness um, that, that actually is something that for both of us, I think that juiciness is what got us into spirituality, that, that, that felt sense of, of, oh, wow, that we get. And so when we talked about doing this podcast, the, the phrase that came up was how do we make Dharma magic again, right? How do we mm -hmm. recapture that excitement, uh, that we felt, um, about this practice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better. It's a um it's a certain paradigm I think that we both um have for a long time observed in American Buddhism where uh particular authority figures or particular organizations have latched on to um, certain narratives uh, that define the Dharma in a particular way that is very dry, um, tends to uh, meld well with scientific materialism and contemporary uh, self-help movements. Um, but overlooks some of the mystery and some of the um, juiciness, like you said, of um, of more uh, culturally traditional forms of Buddhism. And uh, I know that for me, when I first sort of stumbled across Buddhism when I was about twelve, um, it it. It's what I came across was well was specifically uh, Soto Zen. There was still an element of sort of the unknown or the unknowable, and to me that was very um, magical and um, and made a lot of offered a lot of space for um, practice and um, and I think we've drifted into a realm where mindfulness is primarily what people think about when they think about American Buddhism or Buddhism in America or Dharmic practices in America. And, um, and mindfulness as it's presented uh, to us or has been presented over the last 20 years or popularized, man, it can be very dry. Much like the uh, sort of Protestant culture that we are enmeshed in. And in fact, uh, many people call the form of uh, Amerayana, of uh, American Buddhism, a Protestant Buddhism. That although in 
language is Buddhist and grammar is actually Protestant. And so where we wanted to start our conversation was around uh, a very interesting person who in many ways created some of these forms of Protestant Buddhism that are still mirrored today uh, in modern practice. And this is uh, Colonel Henry Olcott, the uh, co-founder of uh, the Theosophical Society, which many people may no longer be familiar with, but Theosophy at the turn of the um, 19th century was incredibly popular. Uh, it came out of the spiritualist movement uh, and was actually originally conceived to be as a reform of the spiritualist movement that had been sweeping American society. Ameri uh, uh, spiritualism was a movement, uh, primarily a grassroots movement, primarily led by women uh, who would speak to the dead through seances. And this was incredibly popular, especially following the Civil War, where so many people had lost so much uh, suddenly. That, that kind of, um, you know, you mentioned that it was led by women, and it's important to remember that, um, uh, first of all, it, it is um, really an early feminist movement in many ways, bringing women out of this sort of um, background, subservient sort of cultural position into a four, uh, you know, into leadership roles in a spiritual movement. Um, and, and so it had a, a ripple effect that really traveled down historically into feminism. But, um, you know, a big part of that was there were just so many husbands and brothers and sons who never returned from the Civil War. It's an, it's an odd side effect of the profound amount of death and loss. Um, you know, not only uh, were the women left to sort of deal with the emotional and spiritual impact of that, but then they were paramount in creating a religious movement that addressed that loss. Yeah, and, and not only did they um, lose these uh, husbands and brothers and sons uh, in the war, uh, but oftentimes people died very, very far from home. The Civil War is when we start to see these new techniques of embalming and other burial techniques that happen. And people are oftentimes buried far from home mm -hmm. or in missing in action, right, in a, in a mass grave. So there's also, for the first time, this disconnect from death, which was a very intimate thing at the end of the, the 19th century prior to the Civil War. People would typically die at home. They would typically be put out in the front room at home. And oftentimes they would be buried in your backyard, right? Most family farms would have a gravesite on the farm. 
um, or their neighbors would have one. And so your loved ones, your deceased loved ones were very, very close to you in many ways. Something, something that was lost uh, during that time. Yeah, I think I think this is around the time period, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, where the sort of uh, commercial um, sort of mortuary business really took off um, around this time period as well, where the commercialization of the process of of death and mourning and burial really starts to take off um, after the Civil War. And, and, at that, um, and at that time, it was still illegal to cremate your loved ones. So this industry of the mortuary, of a stranger taking care of the burial arrangements and having these you know, big public cemeteries was uh, a new thing. Interesting side note, uh, Henry Olcott and uh, Helena... Uh, Blavatsky, the founders of Theosophy, were very instrumental in uh, making cremation uh, popular and legal in the United States. Some of the earliest people who were cremated were theosophists, mm -hmm. and they got this, of course, from the Hindu tradition in India where people were cremated regularly, and that was the, the regular practice. So we're back to, to Henry Olcott. Um, I think a lot of Americans may be unfamiliar with him. They're, they might be familiar with theosophy. They might know a little bit about um, Helena Blavatsky or HPB, uh, as she's oftentimes referred to. Um, but he was very famous in his time. Uh, he was well-known in uh, New England circles. He was a successful lawyer. He was a writer about spiritualism for many New York papers. I believe up to seven different papers he would write for. And he was most famous for being part of the investigation into Abraham Lincoln's assassination. He was a colonel in the Civil War. He was brought in to reduce waste in spending and in many ways led to the victory of the North by uh, decreasing the waste of military spending. And so he was honored after the war uh, in this investigation of Lincoln's assassination. So this was this this guy's not a flake, right? He's not some wacko. He is fully from the American mainstream, especially the Yankee North. He is uh, esteemed. and but he gets into spiritualism. And while he is covering the events at the Eddy Farm, which is one of these places where uh, spiritualist events, knocks, sightings of ghosts, seances, materializations, these types of things are going on. He went down there to investigate it, to write about it for a series that he was doing. And he met this very unusual woman who was wearing a uh, bright red shirt, uh, which was the, the type of shirt that the, uh, I believe it was the Italian revolutionaries would wear. And, uh, and this, of course, was Helena Blavatsky, who became his, really his best friend and closest confidant for the rest of his life. Yeah. 
They are an interesting pairing, a real odd couple. You know, he comes from, he's he's the oldest of six children in a securely New England sort of Protestant family. Um, and um, and it, it's such a dichotomy of his character that, you know, he, he comes from this very sort of stolid background, and yet he's deeply drawn to, uh, and initially drawn in by his own family, I think in his, his uh, late adolescence or early adulthood, he, he, his family had some uh, financial issues, and he went to go live with a branch of his family out in Ohio, who yep. introduced him to spiritualism through the Fox sisters. Correct. Um, and he, you know, it's part of his character that he, he finds these things and he just immerses himself deeply in them. He really uh, has this mind where he's clearly very curious, surprisingly open-minded, uh, you know, for a New England Protestant of that period. Um, and, and so he really takes off. He, he, he jumps right in to the spiritualist movement. Um, an interesting combination. He seems to approach it with an interesting combination of sort of, uh, uh, you know, enthusiasm and, uh, uh, what's the word, I, you know, criticism, I guess, or, uh, you know, he's, he's somewhere in between. He can't, He's, he can't quite make up his mind sometimes if he's just going to take it at face value or if he needs to investigate what's going on under the table, so to speak. Well, um, and I think he does have some experiences. He must have some experiences because he's also lived through the Civil War. So, you know, post-Civil War, it's a lot like the 1920s. People are really turned upside down. They're really looking for a new worldview to explain the world that they find themselves in right the mm -hmm. nation's been torn apart they're they're really looking for something new and i and i have to feel i have to conjecture that he experienced something in those early spiritualist meetings that opened up his worldview to, mm -hmm. to this idea that what he had been taught about the world this sort of solid new england Protestant, you know, very positive worldview was blown apart by the war and then by this idea that there's something beyond this life, that that there is something beyond what we can see at the very least. And certainly later experiences he has with uh, Blavatsky in New York, because they, they even though he's married, they very... Um, shortly move in together. And I, I don't believe that their relationship was romantic in the physical sense uh, at any time. I've never read anybody who, who you know, has said otherwise. Um, but immediately, you know, some really strange things happen. One of Blavatsky's masters comes and, and visits uh, Colonel Alcott in that uh, salon, that salon apartment that they that they had, this very bohemian, um, you know, object strewn, uh, darkened, smoky uh, 
tenement that they have, that they're living together, this very bohemian lifestyle. And I mean, he, he, you know, is awoken in the middle of the night. I think he's having a moment of doubt. And, um, you know, it's just before Blavatsky gets, gets skewered in, in the press, uh, and, or just after, um, but around that time and the, this master, I forget which one it is, appears to him. I I think it was, it was Hoot, uh, I forget the last name, but, um, and, and says, you know, don't doubt her. Don't doubt her. Uh, she needs you more than ever. And, um, I think, I, I think I just have to, I just have to believe that he, even though you're right, I think in, in some ways he doesn't ever really throw himself into things except for theosophy, which they, they do found in New York city together. Well, I mean, he's, I, I find it, I think he does throw himself into things. And yet, um, he has a certain uncertainty. And I think you make a really good point about, you know, the power of the civil war, um, you know, and, and sort of the foundation of your worldview being rocked by, um, you know, this is the first mechanized war. And the 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 amount of death and carnage was, you know, something um, un, unimaginable up until that point. It really changed how people understood conflict and war and and death and carnage and, you know, what it all meant. Um, and so it had to, I think you're right. It had to have taken the foundation of a whole generation um and uh you know with with each advancement in war there seems to be um a sort of karmic effect if you will in terms of what happens uh in civil society outside of that you know uh i was just thinking i uh, about um what was it arthur conan doyle you know became uh, famously became a spiritualist and part of that was the loss of his son and i think that was uh to world war 1 um you know and um i think that people's old uh, sort of religious traditions or spiritual ideal ideals they they felt let down by by the God that they had known that would uh, what, that sort of would allow for this kind of carnage. Um, and they went exploring, you know, they went to go find other gods. Well, and this is also what comes out of this experience for Olcott is that he sees the danger of division. Mm. And that unity really becomes the central theme in his life after that. Uh, Theosophy puts forward the idea that all religions are true. And so anything that creates division, including Christianity, becomes incredibly dangerous to Olcott. And so he he really, to, to the point even where he is able to overlook the shortcomings of Blavatsky because what's more important 
is this idea of unity, this idea of the brotherhood of man, which is what theosophy begins to form, because it's kind of like spiritualists have the same experience that people have when they see a UFO, right? Very, very frequently, when people see a UFO, they have this experience of, oh, the message is that we need to stop fighting with each other and we need to come together as one. And the same experience happens after spiritualism, right? After, after the Civil War and then spiritualism, people have this experience. There's life after death. We need to come together. And you see this big movement of universalism at that mm -hmm. time, this idea that everything is true and of course we can we can take apart the problems you know with the idea that if all religions are true then none of them are true or we can take and, and choose what we want and we'll we'll get into that a little bit but i think that you know first and foremost that idea of unity explains so much going forward for olcott because you know blavatsky was like all spiritualists involved in a certain amount of trickery in order to bring the phenomena forward. So this is a well-known fact within seances and spiritualism that in order to get real experiences of materialization or knocks or you know sounds, that sort of thing, that you actually have to pretend that it's happening and then that somehow invites the phenomena to show up. Uh, and you can read about this in something like The Trickster and the Paranormal, which is a wonderful book on this idea. Um, so he doesn't reject Blavatsky when, you know, the shit comes down on her. And so they actually decide that what they need to do, because they're not doing so well in New York, they do form the Theosophy Society there, but it's not doing terribly well. It's starting to... to to sort of filter out because they they move away from reforming spirituality into this idea of bringing Hinduism and Buddhism. If all religions are true, then we need to bring forward these ancient Eastern wisdom ideas, this idea that the West has the technology, the West has the philosophy and the science, but the East has the spirituality and the mysticism. So we need to bring that forward and that's beginning to not quite take off in New York. So they decide to up and move to India, which is actually where um, Olcott spends the rest of his life in India and Sri Lanka. And he really, he, he says, you know, I am a Hindu in white skin. Probably not a statement that would go over very well today, but he he sort of says, I'm a citizen of India. And they are met uh, when they go to India with tremendous response because here are some very well-known white-skinned European Americans. Well, one is a European American, one's a European, Blavatsky is Russian who come and say, we want to learn from you, right? This is at the height of uh, Victorian uh, you know, British rule of India and Sri Lanka. Yeah. And, and the height of colonialism. And here are some respectable white folk, right? Blavatsky is a member of Russian aristocracy 
and we've talked about Colonel Olcott and his respectability, and they're coming and saying, hey, we want to learn from you. And in fact, Olcott and Blavatsky become the first sort of well-known Westerners who convert publicly to Buddhism. There's a, uh, they go to Sri Lanka where they're also welcomed just by thousands and thousands of people. And um, they go there and they go in front of a monk and in broken Pali, uh, probably similar to my own pronunciations of Pali. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> they take refuge and they take the five precepts of Buddhist lay people and they become Buddhists. Yeah, this is this is really significant. And, and it's important. We can't reiterate enough. First of all, um, being, um, you know, white Anglo or, uh, you know, white Europeans to go to India and to tell um, to tell Indians that um, that they admired and were uh, believers in Hinduism uh, during the height of British imperialism and the very really the beginning this time period in the um, 1870s, 1878, when they moved to India, um, uh, you know, is the sort of the, I, I, my understanding is this, this is the sort of nascent, the beginnings of the Indian independent, modern Indian independence movement really begin to start here. Um, and all, and again, another thing that Olcott, who's, uh, you know, such a character, he touched so many, uh, sort of moments and, uh, that, that still have an impact in contemporary history. Um, you know, Olcott, uh, helps found, uh, schools and other charity organizations and stuff in India and and this is a, has an impact that that reaches all the way forward to uh, Indian independence. Um, and Sri Lankan independence. I mean, if you go to Sri Lanka today, I mean, they've got Olcott stamps, they've got Olcott statues, they've got an Olcott day. These schools that he founded still exist. Um, yeah, you look up uh, biographies on uh, Olcott on YouTube, most of what you find will be in Singhalese, not in English, uh, because he is an incredibly well-known figure there and is really bound up in the uh, re-founding of Buddhism within Sri Lanka. Because, I mean, the, the missionaries were on a tear in Sri Lanka. They knew what they were doing. They were, they were highly organized. They had schools. They had, if you were, if you were an, of the educated, you know, Sri Lankan classes, you know, the upper classes, if you wanted a good education, you went to a white, you know, Christian school and um, they put out, you know, they, they were out there proselytizing and Buddhism in many ways was on the verge of collapse in Sri Lanka. Um, they had, you know, barely survived uh, the Islamic invasion um, in earlier centuries, and then uh, now with the, the Christian invasion, they were really on the edge. And this is where the first uh, 
sort of time that Olcott flips Protestantism and, and turns its tricks against itself. He does, he sort of takes everything that they do and he starts doing it with Buddhism, right? He forms, he forms the schools. Go ahead. Uh, well, I think it's interesting to mention, you know, we were talking about how unity post-Civil War, how unity was so important to him. And it really is something he talks about, he espouses, he works for. And yet at the same time, throughout the rest of his life, he does engage in sort of a spiritual war with um, Christianity. Um, absolutely does. And I, and I was thinking about that. And I think the difference with Christianity, because he had no problem with Zoroastrianism, with Islam, with Hinduism, with Buddhism. Uh, he was like, call me a heathen. I am, I'm a heathen. But at the same time, his critics would oftentimes say, well, if you're so universalist, why are you so against Christianity? Because he really was against Christianity, I think in many ways. And I think it's because he saw Christianity as asserting, as, as the force of division, as, as the force that was against this idea that all religions are true, that it represented the enemy of absolutism, that it's this is the only truth. And in fact, Olcott splits with the Hindus and with the Buddhists who also can't take in this theosophical idea that all religions are true. Um, you know, Dharmapala, um, you know, who was a, a, a major student of the, um, uh, of the, the Blavatsky Olcott crew, um, eventually turned against Olcott because Olcott wasn't Buddhist enough, right? And, and Dharmapala was actually responsible in many ways for the Muslim Buddhist violence of the 1980s because he just said, you know, you're either Buddhist, you know, or you're, or you're against us. It's important, I think, to interject here and just um, maybe uh, tell people who that is and the role he played because he plays an actual, he has his own role that he plays in the introduction of Buddhism to the West. There's an exchange that goes on. It's not one way, uh, but it certainly starts with a Westerner reaching out to uh, Buddhists in the East with, with Olcott moving to India and then spending so much time in Sri Lanka. Uh, and then Olcott funds Dharmapala's trip to back to the States. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure if they had split by then, but um, Anagarika Dharmapala, uh, as you mentioned, very famous within uh, Buddhist circles, the founder of the Mahabodhi Society, which of course is the organization that um, retakes the uh, Bodhi tree site and makes it a Buddhist site again, and who begins to uh, start this movement of translation of the Pali canon into other languages, including English. But he was a student of the uh, Theosophical Society. He was from an upper class family uh, who, and he converted to Buddhism very young. I think he was um, 
celibate his whole life. He wasn't a monk until just before he died, but he was an um, anagarika. That's, you know, sometimes people say that's his first name, but it's actually a title. It means it means that a, a celibate layperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he followed probably the 10 precepts of Buddhism. But I think, I think you, you're right. You know, first, why are we talking about this? Because if it wasn't for a theosophy reaching out to the East, I don't think that certain key people would have shown up at the world's parliaments of religion in 1893. And that, that gathering of uh, religious figures is seminal in the beginnings of Eastern philosophy coming into contact with the United States. You have some huge people who are there. Not only do you have Anagarika Dharmapala, uh, who gives this amazing, famous speech on the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. But you also have uh, Swami Vivekananda, who like is the most popular guy there. He's a student of Ramakrishna. Um, and, and of course, I, I think that it's, it's easy to say that a lot of the Western uh, practices of um, yoga probably stem from his influence and and from his practice uh and then of course you have sogen uh shaku who's also there who was the teacher of dt suzuki yeah ends up being the first zen buddhist preach uh priest who teaches american students so you have these three sort of major schools that are present and i think you can make pretty good argument that if it hadn't been for theosophy and their popularity and their encouragement of these individuals, um, because also Olcott had gone to Japan and encouraged uh, Buddhist, um, pan-Buddhism there as well. And he, you know, he was saying that the the northern school and the southern school should should come back into communication with each other. Um, I think that if, if it hadn't been for for Olcott and, and specifically Olcott's effort more than Blavatsky, because she was kind of you know doing the thing with her masters, and she thought the whole Buddhist Hindu thing was was off track. Um, but if it wasn't for Olcott. I certainly, you know, I, I can't say that we wouldn't be having this conversation, but we certainly wouldn't be at the point that we're at. I mean, Olcott really sets the tone for so many uh, people who would follow in his footsteps. This idea of going to India to find spirituality was a model that, you know, by the 50s, 60s, and 70s became standard for yeah, so and- many American spiritualists. And in part, because like you say, um, characters like Swami Vivekananda, you know, um, captured the American spiritual imagination through their, through their writings and teachings. And again, um, you know, that was part of that Chicago um, world parliament of religions. And um it would not have been the same were it not for the efforts of Olcott. Uh, I do, I, I, I do have in my notes somewhere, uh, or I remember that he did um, raise money uh, to get um, uh, Dharmapala 
to the Chicago World's Fair. So they must have, he must have still been a student of his at that time, or it was before they the the rift grew far enough for them to sort of have um whatever falling out that they had. Um and that rift unfortunately was was very common uh for people who were in Olcott's uh orbit. That Olcott really, I think at the end of the day, was a theosophist and was loyal to theosophy and wasn't a Hindu, wasn't a Buddhist only. He really believed this idea that all religions are true. In fact, uh, at one point, he dressed up as a Jewish man and pretended to be Jewish and said, you know, I, I'm also Jewish. I mean, he he really took this to, to extreme levels as well. Um, he would say to the Zoroastrians, I'm a Zoroastrian. He would, you know, say this to, to the Muslims. He would say, I'm I'm a Muslim. It was Olcott. Olcott was, you know, Olcott's biggest fan, right? And and when yeah. people didn't mold to him, then that's, you know, that's where there were there was trouble. I mean, they even put forward Olcott and Blavatsky put forward uh, the idea of who would be the next Maitreya, right? In uh, the very famous figure of Krishnamurti, who was also one of their students. And mm -hmm. they really were putting him for, they were training him to be the next world teacher, the yeah. next savior, the next, you know, big thing. And eventually Krishnamurti said, no, I, I don't want to be that. I want to be my own person. I don't want to be this puppet. Yeah. Yeah, against his will. I mean, really, he was sort of uh, taken under their wing as as a child, and and uh, and sort of forced into this role. Um, and this is where so, we start to see, you know, the 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 dark side of Olcott. I think, you know, the the idea that he he comes in with this idea that I think is still very prevalent that his Buddhism is the real Buddhism. He goes to Sri Lanka and he says, oh, you guys don't really understand Buddhism, right? At first they say, oh, we're, we're, we're coming to India and Sri Lanka to learn, to listen. But very quickly they say, well, actually, you know, we've read the texts, which you don't seem to read, and we know the real Buddhism. And so we're actually here to save you from your misunderstandings from this this Buddhism that you're practicing, which, you know, is, is, is kind of dirty, right? It, it's not, it's, it's not um, textual, it's not um, intellectual, it's, um, it's certainly, you know, it's interesting that they criticize a lot of the magical practices uh, that were so common in Buddhism being that they came from theosophy, which is based on this idea of speaking to these spiritual masters who are basically magicians, right? And, but, but they don't want anything to do with that. Olcott doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants to instill these Protestant value in the lazy Buddhists and the lazy Hindus uh, and teach them the real Buddhism. In fact, he goes so far as to write the Buddhist Catechism, which yeah. is a very successful book and, and is still in print to this day.
within just a year of officially converting to Buddhism, he writes the Buddhist Catechism, uh, setting down sort of his vision of what Buddhism is and what it should look like. And then he proceeds to found all of these, taking a page from the Protestants uh, or and from Christianity in general, he proceeds to out-missionary the missionaries by uh, opening up a series of schools yep. um, that teach his form of Buddhism to the Buddhists, to the native Buddhist population. Now, granted, Buddhism was struggling in Sri Lanka at the time. It, it was um, really between um, the sort of colonial imperialism uh, and the Western religious missionary uh, efforts. It was um, struggling a little bit. It was not in the best health. And some people think it may very well have died out if it hadn't been for Olka, I mean, and when I say some people, I mean, this is this, this is the narrative you definitely hear from Sri Lankans, is that Buddhism was saved by Olcott. And it's a big deal in the Buddhist world, um, in part because we have seen, historically, Buddhism uh, get snuffed out previously. What were, you know, the Buddhism of Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia was the remains of the, the Buddhism that at one time had been kind of the national faith of India under uh, the Emperor Ashoka. You know, the whole country, the whole nation uh, so of, yeah, of India is sort of united uh, under Buddhist philosophy. Um, and then it gets wiped out through a series of historical events, including the introduction of Islam uh, and, um, and a pushback from uh, Hinduism. But it gets pushed sort of out of, out of the uh, Indian subcontinent and goes north and east and southeast and uh you know and in and, and uh Sri Lanka being one of the first places that India grew to uh out of I mean uh, that that Buddhism grew to outside of India um you know is supposed to be a stronghold of Buddhism and so the loss of it would have been profound to the Buddhist world. Well, especially to the Ther uh, the Theravon Buddhist world. Yeah. I think, you know, Buddhism was much stronger in Japan and in China um, and in Korea at that time. Um, yeah, but, but we see the same thing happen even in um, other Theravadan countries like Thailand, where the king sees what's happening to other Buddhist countries. Um, and he comes in and makes a series of reforms based on Western ideals and really changes the character of Buddhism. He takes the powers away from the abbots and the sort of localized practices and puts them in ha the hands of a central authority. He takes away 
this sort of wandering practice that the monks had. He took away the education that the, the monks would sort of give that were, was individual, and he nationalized it and standardized it and wiped out the magical practices that were very common at the local level and said, oh, no, that's superstition. We're not doing that. And so you know, people who are who are taking away the magic practices of Buddhism are not just Westerners, but also people within the East who are trying to preserve Buddhism against the onslaught of Western culture. Yeah, that brings us to the sort of what were at the, what 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 are, what was at the roots of this Buddhist Protestantism, you know, uh, um, you know what caused it, what made these cultures um, sort of ripe for this transition, and of course, you know, we've mentioned several times colonialism, imperialism, and uh, and Western uh, religious missionary movements. And, um, you know, these were cultures where rapid amount, again, you know, a, a lot of upheaval, a lot of upheaval, uh, a lot of um, chaos. Um, they were the subject of um, the sort of quiet wars, if you will, of imperialism. And they were cultures that had been turned on their heads, um, and uh, in the in in a moment of uh, profound transition from uh, sort of lifestyles and worldviews that were centuries old, um, and were being challenged and sort of um, deconstructed at an unprecedented rate you know, in, in, in one person's lifetime, um, you know, their whole culture, uh, could be wiped out by these colonial forces. Um, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and it wasn't just sort of an attack on known cultural paradigms. It was also the stripping of resources and the enslavement of people. So, you know, you end up going, um, you know, if, if you're a, a person living in one of these countries that's being sort of decimated um, and desecrated, uh, you know, you kind of, and your world gets turned on its head, you're kind of, you're looking for answers or solutions. You're grasping at anything that anybody can come along and offer you, whether it may be sort of like convert to Christianity and your world will become, uh, you know, the ground underneath your feet will become solid again, or, um, you know, or uh, convert to this new form of Buddhism, this more Western, modern, um, more practical form of Buddhism, and your and your world will be safe again. Which I want to draw the parallel to what was happening in the United States following the Civil War who, you know, people are also experiencing this, this same revolution of ideas that, that we talked about earlier. And the whole world is really um, changing. I mean, this is the birth of modernism in this time, which is the other thing that, that really starts to come in is this, you know, scientific materialism, uh, modernism, 
uh, consumerism, these types of things are starting to come in. I think everyone's world shifts are, are, are you know, ground is, is falling away beneath them, as you say. And these projects in Sri Lanka and in Thailand were successful. They, they did revitalize Buddhism and they did um, keep their traditions, although, you know, certainly changed, no doubt about it but they were not taken over. They did not become uh, Christian Western nations. They were able to maintain independence and cultural independence. Not that they, that they you know, lacked problems or anything like that, but I think that to a certain extent, it did work. The, the problem that I see is that the Buddhism of Olcott in many ways becomes the Buddhism of the United States. And the problem with that that I see is that there's been many choice points where people had the opportunity to really, just like Olcott, to really learn from Buddhists but instead very quickly became the experts and began to uh, sell their form of Buddhism for mass consumption. And I think if you look at the folks who came back and, and sort of founded the mindfulness movement through IMS, through Spirit Rock, Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, you know, they studied with people like Deepa Ma who was a who was not a monk? She was, a, you know, a householder who taught people in their homes how to practice in their daily lives. She was a woman of great power. She, you know, she has so many stories about her walking through walls, bilocating, reading people's minds, doing just spectacular things, and yet Goldstein at all say, well, we're going to teach you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. Yeah, for, for anybody who doesn't know, Deepa Ma is a contemporary, almost a sort of a Buddhist saint figure, if you will, from, from India. So this is not ancient history. This is not long ago. We're talking about uh, 60s, 70s. I think she died um, in the 1980s. Yeah, and, and not, and, um, you know, sort of witnessed reports of her uh, doing these miraculous things that are described in traditional Buddhist texts as possible for advanced practitioners of uh, meditation, but are rarely seen today. Uh, and, um, you know, these, these contemporary Western teachers, the founders of the mindfulness um, movement were, were familiar with her. Not only were they familiar with her, not only had uh, a number of them sat with her, studied with her in India, but they brought her back to teach uh, in, uh, in what is it, Barrie, Massachusetts. Yep. Um, and so, you know, she's a well-known, here they have this, uh, Buddhist sort of folk magic practitioner, um, and they 
they recognize her power. They recognize her knowledge of the Dharma and her teachings. They bring her to the States. They expose people to her work. And yet the version of Buddhism that they sort of espouse and package and sell back to the American audience is that um, that Protestant version. It's that very dry, you know, very sensical, non-mystical. Um, yeah, non-monastic. It, you know, um, the word Protestant fits it really well. It, it's like the Protestant Reformation. It's, it's um, you know, both uh, argument against the expertise of a monastic class as a gateway to personal spiritual experience, as well as a sort of um, disassociation with um, the mystical, you know? And, and um, hey, I was, I was no different. When I first encountered mindfulness practice, you know, I, I, I really struggled with reincarnation. I really struggled with um, a lot of the sort of more mystical ideas of Buddhism. You know, when these when these characters would show up in the Buddhist suttas, the the Buddhist scriptures, the early Buddhist scriptures. You know, angels, uh, demons, gods. Um, you know, hell realms, things like that. I would just say, oh, that's just religious nonsense, right? It's that same sort of. Protestant ideal of rejecting Catholicism and the saints and and miracles and all of that and that's a bunch of you know nonsense and um, clearly you know what's being taught to me as mindfulness because it suits me and it it fits with what I know therefore that's the real Buddhism but I think that when we fail to really sit with discomfort, to sit with ideas that we struggle with. When we, when we take away the totality, we really take away from a, a, a great deal of the tradition and we fail to struggle with these difficult ideas and we end up just being trapped in our own culture in a different version of Protestant Buddhism rather than what I think is more accurate is a Buddhist occultism, which is what is more practiced within Buddhist countries. Uh, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by Buddhist occultism. Um, if you go and you receive the, the precepts, um, these are the, uh, the five, typically for a lay person, the five ethical actions or renunciations that one would take, uh, and the three refuges. This is the, the equivalent of, of uh, taking uh, faith or converting to Buddhism. Um, a Buddhist monk in Southeast Asia will tell you that if you practice these things, that you will be protected by Buddhist spirits who will look out for you and will soften the blow of your karma and, and help you out. And, you know, of course, I think teaching that sort of thing in, in the West 
most people, you start talking about spirits, they go, ah, unless you were talking to students of the occult who would go, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense, right? That that absolutely makes sense to me from uh, from that sort of practice. And so I think in many ways, what we're what we're looking at is, you know, comparing and contrasting this Protestant Buddhism that has taken root in the United States and and saying, what are we missing from a Buddhist occultism that might push us, that might expand us, that might cause us to listen again, right. rather than to know? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that is the sort of the basic paradigm is, um, you know, when you go anywhere really throughout Asia where, where Buddhism um, is sort of an extant practice, uh, what you find is um, you cannot separate Buddhist practices from uh, localized folk magic. Uh, you cannot separate it from the occult. It, it's it's there throughout. Often, uh, you know, we've been sort of told, or it's been uh, we've been taught that the sort of you know the it's the um, you know you have the monastics and you have the lay people, and that is sort of um, that's Buddhism, right? You know, you had during the Buddha's lifetime, you had the Buddha and then you had the Sangha or the practitioners, um, uh, the students of the Buddha um, who were monastics for the most part um, or very dedicated lay people who spent time in the Buddha's company uh, soaking in his teachings. And, and then you had sort of the Parisa which is the larger community of people who were, you know, identified with Buddhism as a philosophy and supported the monastic community, feeding them, clothing them, sheltering them, etc. cetera. Uh, but, um, you know, these are lay people. They don't have time to sit around all day and um, meditate. They, you know, they, they've, they've got to grow the food. They've got to do commerce, etc. So this is the paradigm we've been sold as the classical paradigm of Buddhism, of, of traditional Buddhism. Well, what that eliminates, what that what that story sort of eliminates, is that throughout Buddhist countries there are these side figures, and they are very knowledgeable sort of Buddhist practitioners. Uh, they may have. Uh, practice. They may be uh, sort of at, like we are. They may be considered um, lay priests who uh, bridge the gap between lay people and the monastics. So they spend somebody's their time. Somebody's got to marry you. I mean, yeah. the, the 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 Buddhist monks can't marry you. You need somebody to do that, right? So they are lay people themselves, but they have dedicated a large portion of their life to studying the Dharma. And then they offer rituals and ceremonies to address the daily life needs of people in ways that the monastics can't or don't. Uh, so you see that. But you also see, I mean, you know, pardon my poly, you see fucking wizards. 
you know? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in Burma. Um, Burma and Thailand is filled with, with Buddhist wizards. Um, people, we have fortune tellers. You have um, people who uh, will, will heal you. You have, you have people who will cast spells for various uh, things. And, and not only do you have these uh, worldly beings, but you also have this vast pantheon of otherworldly beings. You have Dharma protectors, which are spirits that have been converted to Buddhism, who will protect you. You have bodhisattvas, who are saints, who you can pray to for protection, for well-being. You can pray to them if your children have died and you worried about the souls of your children. Um, you can pray to them to help you in your practice. You've got a whole slew of, of heavenly realms and hell realms. Um, you've got uh, spirits. You've got tree spirits. You've got water spirits. You've got all sorts of um, this, this very animistic, alive universe that yeah, the, exists. The veritable landscape around you is inhabited. There's nowhere you can go that isn't inhabited by uh, visible or unvis invisible beings that fit within this pantheon. And so, you know, throughout Southeast Asia, you'll see things like uh, offerings on street corners or at certain places or in the forest to certain trees um, or, you know, spirit houses. Um, yeah. that to to capture sometimes spirits to help benefit you yeah um, and then I like think for that... a while in in northern thailand they were ordaining trees uh yeah. to protect the forests and no thai forester was going to cut down an ordained tree because one it's a buddhist monk and so like you're going to hell automatically you kill a buddhist monk and two you don't want the tree spirits to be pissed off at you unless you know the metta sutta then then you're okay but so so we see we see this whole world that i think in in olcott's protestant buddhism you know in his need to create that stable ground and in in the in the needs of that time uh, to create this stable ground, I, I think that we see a type of Buddhism that today we're really we really need something else. We actually need the opposite. We need the enlivening of the world. We need the world to come alive to us. We need to move out of the deadening of materialism um, and 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 to begin to see things that are mysterious and that we don't understand because just like with spiritualism, I think that this pulls us into a relationship with reality that really blows us open and opens up new possibilities. And I think in the Dharma of now, which is a, a phrase that came up for us as we were thinking about this podcast, this really is what is feeling alive to us. So we're, we're hoping that if you're interested in some of these topics, in tree spirits, in Buddhist medallions, in um, deep ecology and, and magical resistance 
Um, if you are interested in, you know, speaking to the dead and um, talking about weird corners of, you know, Buddhist wizards and, and this sort of thing, we hope that you will join us in these conversations, if nothing else, to learn about a piece of Buddhism that maybe you didn't know anything about before. Just to, you know, we're not asking anybody to believe in anything, but just to know that it's there. And, and rather than to have a primitivist bias against these things, to instead finish what Olcott and Blavatsky started, which is actually to go and to listen and to really learn from these traditions, um, even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, in, in doing our exploration of this, um, you know, what came up for me as a longtime Buddhist practitioner um, and somebody who, like you described, has gone through sort of a, a certain curve in my learning and my awareness of my spiritual needs and my um, level of acceptance for uh, that which seems foreign to my palate, if you will, my spiritual palate, um, you know, that that I have come to this place um, where, you know, on the one hand, it would be easy to criticize a character like Olcott for his his sort of whitewashing of traditional Buddhism. And, and then yet, on the other hand, um, I have this strong awareness, you know, that Buddhism always, it, it's, it's, it is um, subject to impermanence. Mm. Uh, just like every, everything else, you know, um, and you know, we talk about anicca and impermanence and what that means uh, in Buddhism. Uh, and part of what it means is that Buddhism is always going to be changing. And that's part of it being alive, a, a living thing that, um, you know, is constantly going through changes to meet the needs of times and places. And, um, you know, Olcott, can really reasonably seen as a sort of um, person who kept a branch of Buddhism alive and thriving, uh, you know, into the 20th century and bridged an important gap between Western and Eastern cultures. And he can also be seen as a very typical, uh, you know, representative of his era he's a straight white man he's uh inherently racist he's inherently misogynistic or much less so than many of people from his generation uh you know he's prejudiced in many ways he believes that uh white european modernity is um you know the best and um and yet in his sort of terrible white savior complex way, he still does something that's profoundly important and is still celebrated by people 
you know, modern Buddhists in Sri Lanka. And he's a, just kind of a microcosm of what has always occurred in Buddhism. It travels from culture to culture, and it takes the aspects that it needs. It takes on the aspects that it, it, it is needs to survive in localized cultures. Um, and it, and that's how it has, uh, sort of maintained itself and thrived. And so. And I think additionally, you know, he spoke of pan Buddhism, of having gatherings and discussions between the various schools of Buddhism. And that, that is something that actually has come to pass and, yeah. and come to be a common thing where, you know, you and I both attended uh, University of the West, which is a uh, Buddhist university uh, in Los Angeles, where people from every tradition of Buddhism, both um, uh, Buddhists from Asia and Buddhists from the United States, uh, from every school, and who have a chance to speak to one another, who have a chance to influence each other. Uh, that these types of gatherings are held uh, regularly. I think every 10 years, there's a there's a gathering of all the Buddhist teachers from around the world, from uh, different traditions, both East and West, um, where this has become a common thing. And, and so I think, you know, yeah, he was, he was a, he was a man of his time. Um, and certainly, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of critique that can be thrown at Protestant Buddhism. Um, however, he was the, the Buddhist that was needed at the time. And I think he is important to know uh, and he's important in the history of not only Buddhism, but also Buddhist occultism, because I, I think it's it's easy to forget that, you know, he was also on this mission because he had been told by, you know, uh, a master to go do this. And, um, you know, he had been found because Blavatsky had been told by a master to go find Olcott and go change the world. So I think at the same time that we can criticize him, um, we also you know, are still influenced by him and still influenced by what uh, he brought, he and, and Madame Blavatsky uh, brought um, to, to the West. Yeah, it's interesting. The fact that we're having this conversation in part is based on on our knowledge that not very many uh western dharma practitioners realize the sort of debt they owe to him and um and it's in part because he's uh he's not he's avoided he, he, you know he's sort of the, the the dirty secret or the skeleton in the closet of western you know practical modern, scientific, uh, psychologically sound uh, Buddhist pra practices. It's based wanna, on a couple of spiritualists. Don't want to own up to the fact that the <laughs> roots of American Buddhism are as woo-woo as you could possibly imagine. 
And that's what we're hoping for. We're we're hoping to to make Dharma magic again. And we look forward to you joining us. I imagine that uh, we will probably get a Discord server going for this, uh, Instagram, all that good stuff. We hope that you join the conversation. We hope um, that you uh, join us in this exploration. And we look forward to future episodes uh, with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to our weirdness. And we hope to encourage your weirdness. And um, we will hopefully see you on the flip side. My love to the graceful serpents, to the pythons, my love to. My love to the vipers, adders, to the brown snakes, my love to. My love to those with no feet, to those with two feet, my love to. My love to those with four feet, to those with many feet, my love to. Let the footless harm me not, nor the two-footed do me harm. Let the four-footed harm me not, nor the many-footed do me harm. All creatures and all breathing things, all beings none excepted, good fortune may they see, and may no harm come near. Infinite the Buddha, infinite the Dhamma, infinite the Sangha, but finite are the creeping things, snakes, scorpions, and centipedes, spiders, lizards, rats. Now have I made this warding and protection, so may those beings go away. Him I'll be the blessed one, seven Samasambuddhas I revere.